Uh, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, it is a joy for our family to be back here and worshiping with you again. Uh, Perhaps uh, throughout the course of the next few days, I'll have opportunity to tell you a little bit more about our family vacation, but it was action-packed and uh, fun, and uh, we come back in here ready to get back into normal living again, uh, that's for sure. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching just a little bit shorter than normal, unless I feel like you need a longer sermon. I'll just kind of see how you're listening and how you're you're following along, and if you're repentant, and uh, so on. And uh, we'll see. Uh, But we are planning a little bit shorter sermon just because of the communion uh, that we're going to partake in here uh, together today. I know that's what every pastor says, right? Uh, Short sermons. But Uh, we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. And uh, in these chapters, at the very beginning, in chapter 8, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols. He brings up a a question or a statement that the Corinthian church had asked him about meat offered to idols. That was a controversial issue in their day, in their culture. And so Paul begins to lay out different principles. Remember, sometimes we ask a simple question and we get a complex answer. Simple question, can I eat the meat? Paul says, why don't you have a seat? I've got several things for you to think about. And so uh, we've been working through chapters 8 and 9, the whole way through there, and Paul lays out uh, different principles. You need to consider the weaker brother. You need to think about the gospel. You need to also be concerned for personal discipline. Remember at the end of chapter 9 last week, we talked about 1 Corinthians uh, 9 verses 24 through 27, where Paul compares himself, or he looks at the analogy of the Isthmian games in Corinth, and he says, Just like those athletes discipline themselves in the all things, I discipline myself so that I do not become disqualified as an apostle. And so Paul lays out his own, a a personal discussion of the way he exercised discipline in his own Christian life. But then as we turn the the, the page to chapter 10 in our Bibles, we, we see that Paul continues to emphasize personal discipline, but now he's no longer talking about athletes or himself. He uses the story of Israel to compel the Corinthians to be cautious in matters of Christian liberty. So you see the very first word in chapter 10 is the word for. When you see that, Paul is giving further explanation or further reasons or grounds for why we should be disciplined in the way that we live. It seems as if one of the reasons why Paul is using the example of Israel in this text is because Israel in the Old Testament as a people, especially the first generation who came out of Egypt into the wilderness, they were an overconfident group of people who liked to live out on the edges of the freedom that God had given to them as a people. In other words, what what I think Paul is doing here is he's showing us, you know, what what the Israelites were to compromise and overconfidence to the Old Testament. What they were to the Old Testament, the Corinthians may be in the New Testament. So the Corinthians will have much to learn here. Have you ever met someone before who was too confident in their own ability to handle something? Uh, Before I came in this morning, actually last night, I asked permission to use one of my children who remain nameless as an example uh, this morning. She is working in the nursery, though, so you might be able to figure it out. Uh, 
so I can actually say whatever I want, right? Um, one of my children is now of legal driving age. It's hard to believe uh, we've, we've arrived at this moment. Um, and she is quite confident that she is ready to drive. I have to admit, though, I have my own doubts uh, about the situation. One of the things that causes me to doubt is... Uh, I've given her a hard time about this for a while. Her basic approach or strategy to driving is just go for it. You know, just go for it. Uh, Whenever uh, the light turns yellow when I'm driving and she's in the vehicle, you know, uh, her, often the way she'll respond is, you've got this. You've got this, Dad. And so one of the things I'm going to be teaching her in the next few months is driving is not as easy as I make it appear. Uh, (laughs) And that uh, just because you can, you can speed through a yellow light doesn't mean you should. It seems as if some people treat Christian freedom or liberty that way as well. They find themselves in a place where it's questionable whether or not they should do it. It's like they forget where the brake is, right? And they hit the gas pedal. So you come through this text of Scripture, Paul is going to be discussing the Israelite people. Look in your Bible at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not uh, common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation or but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In verses 1 through 13, Paul progresses through the story of Israel in three phases. And what I'm planning on doing is taking three sermons to work through these, this set of verses with you. Okay, so we'll preach this morning, tonight, and then next Sunday through the first 13 verses here. As we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4, I think that Paul is... Uh, teaching us the principle of caution in matters of Christian liberty. In other words, he's saying we must be careful not to be overconfident in matters of Christian freedom. One of the ways that Paul progresses through this story of Israel is he first talks about the privileges that were extended to uh, the Israelite people. In Romans chapter 2, as Pastor Les read this morning, uh, Paul recalls some of the privileges there as well. He does this in, in other places in the scripture as well. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see the privileges of Israel. 
these privileges are all marked out by a key word in verses one through four. Look down in your Bible and see if you find a word that is repeated. Okay, so if you're looking in your Bible, you don't have to look very, um, whoops. You have to look very closely to see that there's a word that's repeated five times. So in verses one through four, what Paul's doing at the beginning is he's recalling the history of Israel. And in particular, he's looking at five privileges that were extended to them. If you mark in your Bible, you might underline the word all, and then you'll, you'll remember this part of the text and what's going on in the passage. And so he talks about the privileges of Israel here, and he, he declares right at the beginning of the passage in verse one, that the Corinthians need to know something. In chapter eight, I find it ironic that many of the Corinthians were claiming to know that idols were nothing that meets nothing, that they would have the privilege to be able to eat it. They claimed to have superior knowledge, but Paul is telling them something with that first phrase, for I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be ignorant. I want you to know something, Paul says. And then he goes through each of these privileges. I think we can move quickly through them. Here this morning, first of all, in verse 1, the first part of the verse, uh, he wants them to know that all of our fathers were under the cloud. They were all under the cloud. I think this speaks to the fact that Israel was led by God in the Old Testament era. They followed God. Of course, the cloud that he's talking about here refers to the cloud that guided the Israelite people throughout their wilderness wandering, right, in the Old Testament era. Sometimes we struggle with the will of God. And I've often thought it would be wonderful. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God's cloud just kind of went in front of you to show you where you should go? But the Israelite people were led by God. This speaks of God's direction in their life. Maybe his protection as well, but probably his direction. God led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, but Paul here only recalls the cloud. He then goes on to the next privilege of Israel in saying that they were all fortified by God. This is the last part of verse 1. Look in your Bible at verse 1 again. It says, at the end of that verse, it says, and all pass through the sea. See, second privilege here, all passing through the sea. I think this describes the protection of God and blessing of God upon the Israelite people. And of course, he's describing the Israelite people passing through the Red Sea. You remember this story as well in the Old Testament, where God piles the waters up on two heaps at the Red Sea and allows the Israelite people to all pass through. So again, I would say, I think that he's describing here the fact that Israel was fortified by God. He did miraculous things to protect them and to provide for them. And so, uh, as he's saying here in the text, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. That leads to the third advantage or privilege of Israel, and they all fellowshiped with God. This is how I take verse 2. And uh, there are some mysterious things that we're going to partake in here in just the next few verses. So, buckle your safety belts. It says that they all fellowshiped with God. It says, uh, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. So what does this mean, right? 
The text says that they're baptized unto or into Moses. How can someone be baptized unto or into some other person? I think the best solution that I found in this text is that Paul is using baptism here in a symbolic way. Symbolic way. He's saying something like this. When when the Israelites passed between the waters of the Red Sea and they had the cloud above them, it's like they were baptized, okay? They're baptized especially into Moses. Like in this baptism, they are identifying themselves with the administrator of the old covenant, Moses. Okay, and one of the things I'd point out here is this third benefit or privilege summarizes in some way the first two because he recalls the first two. Look at verse two again. All were baptized unto Moses, they identified with Moses and his leadership, in the cloud and in the sea. I think that perhaps uh, Paul is going after something here with the Corinthian assembly. Um, I think this would be a good reminder to them. There, There may be some of the Corinthians who were boasting or bragging in their baptism. And they thought that their baptism into Jesus Christ would mean that they were immune to spiritual failure or immune to the dangers of pagan idolatry. You see, arguing, you know, I've been baptized. I'm okay. I got this. I can go into the idol temple and eat the meat. It's no problem. And so Paul is saying, you know what? You need to be careful. Just because you're a baptized follower of God doesn't mean you're beyond failure or fallen. Look at Israel in the Old Testament. They followed God. They they were uh, fortified by God. They fellowshiped with God. Yet the text will go on to say here in a moment that they failed. It leads to the fourth advantage in verse three. The fourth privilege is that they were fed by God. It says, and they all ate the same spiritual food. This phrase indicates that the Israelites were fed by God in the wilderness. Of course, I think this is going back to the Old Testament, first generation of Israel in the wilderness, and he's describing in particular the manna that God gave them miraculously in in the wilderness. I think it might also or could also be describing the quail that God gave them. One of the interesting things to me about Paul the Apostle is all throughout here, he's going to be talking to the Corinthians about whether or not they can eat meat And all of the texts he keeps referring to in his Bible, the Old Testament, are about food. So I think of it this way. I think, you know, Paul, as he sits down to write 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, I've got some believers asking me questions about what they can and cannot eat. Can I think of texts in the Old Testament that would address this sort of subject? And so this is one of the illusions that he would give. They all ate the same spiritual food. I Now, I think the the word spiritual, I would describe that as the spirit of God being the source of the meat. It came from the spirit of God. The spirit of God provided the manna and the quail in the wilderness. And so they were all eating the same spiritual food. And that leads us to probably the most mysterious statement in this text, at least this part of the text. Look down in your Bible at verse 4. It says, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, drink provided by the Spirit, 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Not only did God meet their need for food in the wilderness, he also gave them water. So in verse 4, Paul recalls the fact that God provided for them water out of a rock. But there are some interesting statements made about the rock here, aren't there? I like to summarize and say, you know what, there are two questions about this rock that make it difficult for us to fully grasp, okay? The first thing you need to consider is what I call the movability of the rock. You see in the text here, it says, the rock followed them. What does that mean? Okay, you're going to have to uh, struggle over figuring this out for 30 seconds or a minute this morning. This has perplexed me for years. What is this movable rock that Paul's describing here? Of course, I think he's alluding back to the fact that God provided water out of a rock in the Old Testament to the Israelite people. But first we talk about the fact that it was in some ways movable, perhaps. Um, there is an old rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition, that goes back to two sources in the first and second century that describe a belief by some of the rabbis in the fact that this rock rolled along throughout in the wilderness following the children of Israel, providing continual water for them. That teaching seems really strange to us, right? And I will admit that I don't think that there's anything in the Old Testament itself that would necessarily declare that. But having said that, some people, some believers today, believe that this rock rolled around producing water for the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And I say, you know, my, my first or gut reaction to that view was, man, that's just crazy. But then I remember one of my students years ago asking me a question about this text. He says, uh, Pastor Brent, do you believe that there was an earthquake that occurred the same day Moses said a new thing would happen and that, that the ground would open up and swallow the people who were not on God's side? So do you think that happened? Yes, I do. I believe that happened that day. He says, do you believe that on one particular point in the wilderness that God opened up the waters of the Red Sea by parting them with his hand, and then two million people walk through on dry ground. I said, you know, I believe that. Yeah, I can believe that. He said, you believe that there's this one other time in Numbers 11 when God said he's going to provide meat for the children of Israel, and 180 million plus quail came out of nowhere, and God gave them meat? See, I believe that. He says, what's so hard about believing in a movable rock? <laughs> so you want, okay, you make a good point. Okay. So it might be possible, it might be possible that God continued to provide water for the Israelite people in that way. So it could be literal. It could also be symbolic. Many people take this in a more symbolic way. They explain the following rock or the movable rock as a lasting source of water that came from the, the rock. So the water did not stop flowing and form some form of lasting stream for the children of Israel so that they were continually provided for in the wilderness with no 
water. And so we have to talk about the movability of the rock. But that leads us to another discussion about the identity of the rock. The identity of the rocks. The reason some people take it symbolically that it didn't move around, but it just kept providing water for them, is one of the reasons is because Paul will also say or identify the rock as Christ. Okay, and without taking a lot of time on this again, I would suggest I think Paul is using this in a symbolic way again. I don't think that Jesus Christ took the form of a rock necessarily, okay? but that the rock prefigures Christ as an illustration of God's help and his saving activity for his people in both eras. Okay, so this is a symbolic or a typological view. I think there are other reasons to think it's a type. I mean, all throughout, he says, you're baptized unto Moses. What does that mean? That's, that's a symbolic sort of language. I think he's talking symbolically here as well, and he's describing the fact that Jesus Christ, in some way or another, provided for the, the children of Israel through this rock in the Old Testament. The main point of this comparison is, is that the miraculous water from the rock sustained Israel. And this provision came from God and sustained them. Christ, as well, comes from God and sustains us in this New Testament era. Regardless, the primary point of verses 1 through 4 is to see all of the privileges of Israel. And verses 3 and 4, as we look at the last two, we see that all Israel ate the same food and they drank the same drink. I think he's describing the unity that they experienced in God's provision in this way. Now, I have a personal opinion about this passage as well that I think would be good for you to consider for just a moment. Up there, I've listed four of the five privileges of Israel. The fifth one, or actually the third one, speaks of their baptism. What I think the Corinthian, what what Paul might be doing in this text is subtly confronting some of the Corinthian believers who were claiming to be beyond spiritual failure or dropout. I can go into the idol temple, it's no problem. Why? Well, I've been baptized. They were overconfident. They were overconfident. And that was leading them into very compromising situations. So when he says they were all under the cloud and under the sea, I think he might be picturing their baptism. And, and, and then when he says that they all ate the same food and all drank the same drink, in my opinion, he might be referencing the fact that some of the Corinthians are claiming to, they're boasting in their participation in the Lord's Supper. Their participation in the Lord's Supper. So as Richard Hayes says, they felt that they were immune to to any harm that pagan worship might inflict on them because of their former celebration of the Lord's table. So they're like this, you know, I got this. I can go down into to the idol temple. It's no problem because I've participated at the table of the Lord. Now, later on in this same chapter, Paul's going to talk about the Lord's table. And he's going to say, you know what? Do not participate in the Lord's table in the table of demons. Yeah, but I think it's, it's quite possible that some of the Corinthians were also boasting in the fact that they 
um, were, had participated in the Lord's table. Perhaps they felt that communion meant that they were not vulnerable to spiritual dropout. These are the privileges of Israel. We just take a moment then to look with you at verse 5. We won't get both of, uh, of the two points I want to make in verses 5 and 6, but we'll just look at verse 5 this morning. After the privileges of Israel, Paul begins to systematically remind the Corinthians of all of the problems of these people. And what I believe he does, in verses 7 through 10, he lists four specific problems. But right before that, in verses 5 and 6, he gives an overview of why Paul is using the Israelite story with them. So look down in your Bible at verse 5, and we'll just look at the first lesson, uh, two reasons here why Paul wrote about Israel. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Starting here in verse 5, Paul shows us that despite all of the privileges of Israel, God was not pleased with many of them. That's what uh, some versions say, the ESV translates it, most of them. I think either translation might be a bit understated. Another way of saying this was God was not pleased with all but two of them in the first generation, Joshua and Caleb, who give a good report of the land and believe that God can give them the promised land. And so one of the lessons that uh, Paul would teach the Corinthians and us by extension would, would, would be this, spiritual privilege does not guarantee success. Okay. Yes, they had all of the privileges, but you also need to see what happened with this generation of Israelite people. So in verse 5, he says, God is not pleased with most of them because they're all, they were all overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown is a very strong word here, and I think it pictures the fact that they were, they were you, you could translate it, they were shrewd or they were spread out all throughout the desert. I mean, when God is done with the first generation of the Israelite people, there'll be graves in every section of the desert. And very few of this first generation will actually die a, a natural death. If you want to read more about the stories that we're going to be looking at in the, in the ne next two sermons and the end of this one, I would encourage you to go back to the book of Numbers sometime. Numbers chapters 1 through 25 tell the story of the first generation of the Israelite people. The first generation did not trust God in the wilderness. In Numbers 11, they begin to complain about him and his provision for them. So God wiped them out. There's an old, old commentator and Bible scholar by the name of Leon Wood. He wrote a book called The History of Israel. And Leon Wood describes what happened to this generation after God decides to wipe them out. Leon Wood says, uh, what you have is you have about 38 and a half years of judgment from the hand of God upon these people. Then he does something very interesting. 
in a bit of conservative math, Leon Wood says, you have about 1.2 million Hebrew adults at this point. And so God says, none of them are going to get into the promised land. And so in 38 and a half years, what God does is he starts wiping out the adult generation of Israelite people. He says, so Leon Wood says, so if you do the math, what actually is going on here is he says, you have on the average for 38 and a half years, you have 84 people dying a day. He said, then because Jewish people only bury people during the day, daylight hours, he said, on the average, you would have seven funerals an hour in Israel. I know there were some things that really helped that average, right? Ground opening up, 250 people falling in. One day, 23,000 people being wiped out. But, But on the average, seven funerals a day. Or, I'm sorry, seven funerals an hour for 38 and a half years. God was not pleased with them. And so why would Paul use this illustration or example with the Corinthian people? I think that the point he is making here is, Corinthian believers, you should not be too overconfident. In this area of Christian liberty, yes, you can eat meat, but be careful where you do so. You know, don't just press the gas pedal and walk in there as if, if nothing is going to happen to you or nothing could happen to you. And so let me close in this way. I think it would be very good for us in this room to also be careful not to be too overconfident. Overconfident as if we couldn't fall or fail spiritually. This past week, I had the opportunity to interact with several of my friends and family members. It's been several years since I saw many of them, some 15 or 16 years. One of the things that I was reminded of is of the fact, you know, do, do not be overly confident in the fact that, you know, just because you grew up in church, that you are going to continue to please or serve God. I have friends, relatives, family members who have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, their lives are a mess. Some of them have walked away from Christ, would no longer declare to be followers of Jesus Christ. And so let me close in this way. Let's learn from the example of Israel. One of the lessons we must learn is that spiritually privileged people or spiritual privileges do not necessarily guarantee faithfulness or success in our Christian walk with the Lord. At this point, I invite you to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. We're going to prepare now for the Lord's table, and I would invite the deacons to come forward. I'll give you just a moment of quiet reflection here. Reflect upon the text. There's a warning. Paul uses Israel to warn the Corinthians not to be overconfident. I trust as well we would be warned. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather and to go through your word. We thank you for the privilege it is, Lord, to be able to, to consider even the privileges that were offered to the Israelite people, your people in the Old Testament era. I pray that followers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as new covenant people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would be confident in his work 
to cleanse us, to redeem us. Lord, we'd be confident in the righteousness that we have in him. But Lord, that we would not be overly confident in our own ability to please you. (coughs) Lord, I pray for any believer here today who would be wrestling through some significant issue or sin struggle. I pray, Lord, that now as we reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins, that they might be able to rejoice that is covered and under his blood. But, Lord, as well, might this participation and celebration be a moment that challenges us to live our life faithfully for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.